All right, all right. Well, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Got a special guest for you today, Dr. Joseph Boot. Hope you guys enjoy. I don't know if it's cloudy or Well, thanks again, guys, for coming and being with us today. Got Dr. Boot in, in, in the house with us. Um, I did actually make it through this book uh, last year, which was amazing. It's not one you want to drop on your toe, but uh, it is one you want to read and have a Bible study about. I've been following uh, Dr. Boot's ministry for a while. I uh, read that book and it was actually, I just didn't know he even did that kind of stuff. And through, through reading that, and I read a uh, gospel culture and then I read a uh, ruler of Kings and I just been eating this stuff up because I feel like he's one of the voices right now that not only gives a clear diagnosis, uh, the, the kind of ideological reasons why we are where we are, sociological reasons, but also gives a remedy from a biblical perspective of like, man, for instance, the, the subtitle of this says a manifesto of hope for society. And so the mission of God, a manifesto of hope for society, we know we need hope right now, and it feels hopeless at, at, at times. And so I just am so glad to have you on the show today, Dr. Boot, and I can't wait to jump into this material. And so first thing I want to hop into, it is Easter week, uh, we're recording this. And you know, so many people will go to the churches and, and they'll have amazing services and they will talk about the atoning death of Jesus and how the cross, you know, provides justification for us to be reconciled to God and as individuals to go to heaven when we die to save our souls. Um, but many times that's, that's sort of the extent of our understanding of the gospel message is that justification part, the element of it. And I know one of the things I've learned for you, Dr. Boot, is just the nature of the gospel from a biblical perspective. Can you talk about maybe the the difference between what you sometimes refer to as a truncated gospel versus the full-blooded uh, biblical gospel of the kingdom? Mm-hmm. Well, I think perhaps a good place to start with that is to say that sometimes we stop at uh, entrance into the kingdom rather than the end goal of the kingdom. So it's not that those who um, talk about the centrality of the cross of Christ and our justification by faith um, are wrong. Um, it's that they've only got part of the story. Um, so the you know when we look at the, the the full spread of the of the biblical picture of the biblical world and life view as it, as it comes to us um, in Scripture, uh, we we see that um, God has created a good creation. He's made human beings in His image with a purpose, and that purpose we could summarize essentially as human culture to have dominion, to rule and subdue. Uh, in terms of the purposes of God, to image God to creation and to worship him, to serve him, to glorify him in creation. Uh, the, what the, um, the, the fall of man did, of course, was to alienate us from God because of sin and rebellion. But that then led to an attitude towards our life in creation where we would then seek to alienate God's creation from him. So because of our personal alienation from god we then seek to alienate creation itself from him and so when christ comes as the second adam he comes preaching the kingdom of god 
which concerns the restoration of God's order for creation. So the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. So how is the last Adam going to restore or, 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 or buy back to redeem, to ransom a people for himself who will be a new humanity, who will be obedient to the mandate given to our first parents to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture, which the Bible calls the kingdom of God? So entry into the kingdom is by repentance and faith through the redemptive work of Christ at the cross. But we're not redeemed so that we can be mummified and then sat on a pew <clears throat> uh, to listen to a few sermons before we go to heaven. That, that's not the, the biblical message. Rather, we've been given a ministry of reconciliation, and the Bible employs a variety of <clears throat> excuse me, metaphors we're soldiers, we're ambassadors, we're prophets, priests, kings. Uh, it uses a variety of terms for our for our role now as those who are in Christ, who are new creatures. So I think the tendency is that we've the truncation that you've talked about is where we stop at the entranceway, the doorway of the kingdom, which is the cross, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ, who redeemed us at the cross, uh, is no longer there. And of course, as we come into this Easter weekend, as you've said, um, we move from the cross to the resurrection. And then, of course, uh, to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ in a few weeks, and then to Pentecost itself. So we have the session, uh, the ascension, and then the session, the seating in the place of authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sending of his spirit. And so when the martyr Stephen, the first martyr in Scripture, saw the Lord Jesus Christ as he was preaching the gospel and uh, people could not tolerate the gospel of the kingdom, they put their fingers in their ears and they stoned him. And of course, Saul was there, Paul was there holding the coats. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of power and authority. He didn't see him on a cross. He saw him standing at the, the, the right hand of all power and all authority. Um, and that was the, the, the Christ, the sovereign Lord, in the place of all authority, standing in honor of this uh, martyr, this servant of the kingdom of God. So that truncation is, is, is stopping at the first rung of the ladder. It's the beginning point. It's the entry point. But the, the entry is not the end. The end is the reconciliation of all things to God in Christ. Mm. Now, that's that's really helpful. And, you know, you talk about Christ being an authority. <clears throat> you know, I think for many of us that kind of grew up in normal evangelical circles, we don't really know what to do with that. Like we think of Jesus as merely king of our heart, maybe, and then maybe king like down the road, like in the eschaton or the millennial kingdom. But you you have a different view of what it means for Christ to be ruler. Can you talk a little bit about what what that actually means? Mm -hmm. Well, Christ's kingship involves the fulfillment uh, of the the messianic, the prophetic expectations that there were, uh, which we see in the Older Testament, for the blessed one, for the coming of the Son of God, for the Redeemer, for the Messiah. Um, take, for example, Psalm 2, which is a prophecy about the coming 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 110, where David is talking about him. In fact, the whole of the Psalms really, in many respects, paint this picture of the sovereignty of God and of his son. And the Psalm too speaks about a Messiah, uh, the, the, the anointed one coming, uh, the king set on Zion, who is uh, ruling the nations. And um, <clears throat> we see that when, uh, well, when, when Jesus comes and talks about the kingdom, the kingdom requires a king, and a king has a domain, and there's no such thing as a king without a domain and a, a territory and a law. Um, we recognize kingship. I know that um, some time ago, um, my American brothers and sisters uh, set aside the gift of kingship, but in in a different context. But the um, but the but the, the the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, of which monarchy is but a pale uh, reflection. Um, you know, the crown authority is represented, um, for example, on the coins. Um, uh, there's a sense of that we're reminded constantly when you look at a, a, an English coin, a British coin, of the ruler, of the sovereign of the land. And so um, Christ, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, is the sovereign over all the earth. And so, again, related to your first question, because of that truncation, you're right, what's tended to happen is when we think about Christ's kingship, we think in very um, personal terms about Jesus being personally the king of my heart. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, Christ must be king in the, at the root of our being, which is the Bible's understanding of the heart. It's the, the center of our being that controls the rest of our lives. What tends to happen, though, is we privatize that heart. So instead of the heart being seen as the root from which everything else springs, which is what the Bible says about the heart, if it's from the heart that spring the issues of life, um, the heart becomes this privatized idea of the space between my ears uh, where Jesus might be allowed to rule and perhaps in the institutional life of the local church. But beyond that, Jesus can't be king. And yet that's not how the Old Testament describes the Messiah. It's not how we encounter Christ in the, his appearance uh, in the incarnation. And it's not how we see him in uh, John, uh, in Revelation 1.5, as the present tense ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who is extending now his kingdom into all the earth, who now today sits at the right hand of God in the place of all power and authority. And that's exactly what the book of Hebrews tells us about Christ, is that he is bringing all things into subjection. Now, we don't see, the writer of Hebrews says, at this point, everything in subjection, but we do see Jesus. And that's because the bringing of all things into subjection is a process. It doesn't happen instantaneously. Christ has, in one sense, we can talk about the realized aspect of the kingdom, is that he has stripped principalities and powers and authorities of their authorities, made an open spectacle of them at the cross. We know that. He's conquered death through the, the resurrection. He's been seated at the right hand of God now. He is now the ruler of the kings of the earth. But the realization, the manifestation of that in history is a process. And it's not consummated, it's not completed, it's not finished until the end of time. So Paul, I think in 1 Corinthians 15, 
speaks about this process um, in which um, things are being brought into subjection when finally the kingdom is handed over to the father and the last enemy that will be defeated is death itself. So uh, that's why we are called in history as God's people to press the crown rights of Christ the King. As ambassadors, we represent Christ's crown authority in the earth, wherever God has placed us, wherever he's called us. So I would see, because I think the Bible sees, it's not my doctrine, it's not my idea, uh, it's the biblical idea that um, we cannot, because of secular pressure, because of our cultural moment, privatize the kingship of Christ to the point where it disappears between my ears and cannot even be spoken um, in the public space. No, the, the Christ of Scripture is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Uh, he is the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's the one whom the Scripture says kings must kiss the son lest he be angry judges of the earth, kings, magistrates, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Wow. Yeah. That's uh there's a lot there and so many avenues that need to be gone down, which is why I recommend to our readers these books all the time, because you really cover all those topics um, exhaustively. But I think a couple paradigms that might be like being challenged in that is, is one is like our typical eschatology, which tends to be really pessimistic. And so you're, you're saying like, no, there's an increase of, of Christ's rulership in the earth. And we tend to think of the opposite, like, man, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Just try to snatch as many souls. The other part of that, that, that paradigm is I think most of us tend toward pietism. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that before we talk about the implications of what you just spoke on. But what is that pietistic element that runs through evangelicalism that keeps us in that privatized mindset? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's another uh, very interesting question and topic. Um, piety, of course, is a good thing. Um, when we talk about personal piety, we mean our personal walk with Christ, our pursuit of Christian virtue, our uh, spiritual disciplines of prayer and the reading of scripture and uh, the gathering together with believers and so on. So Christian piety um, is important. The problem is when you get the ism on the end and the Christian life is reduced to the, uh, there's an overemphasis there, there's a sort of absolutizing of the idea of spiritual disciplines into the the essence or the the Christian life in toto, as though those are the only important things, or as though that's the only way in which the life of Christ is manifest in our lives. Uh, there's been a variety of streams of pietism, but it's certainly come to the fore again. It originally sort of came out of Germany and Europe. Um, but uh, it's come to the fore again, the more aggressive the secularism has become, and the more uh, Christians have felt marginalized, ostracized, um, and, uh, you know, in a certain sense, um, mocked, persecuted, sidelined, the more we've uh, tended to retreat into a pietistic bubble, which I think you rather effectively described there as... Um, uh, a kind of um, hunkering down a uh, 
uh, snatching a few brands from the burning en route to heaven uh, is kind of the extent of what is important. Um, and uh, that really is a, is a, it's not just a truncation, it really is a, a sort of hollowing out, a denaturing of the fullness of the of the Christian life, that uh, that Christ's kingdom life in us, his redemptive work in us, um, touches all the areas that sin has touched. So it's not just from um, personal sin and guilt that he has redeemed me, but from the power of sin and death um, uh, in every aspect of life. So salvation and redemption touches everything that sin and death has touched and uh the 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 principle of sin has touched every aspect of life and so the reality of redemption is touching every aspect of life as well so i can't in sort of the, a false notion of personal piety leave um business economics the arts law political life culture at the door and say, well, imagine somehow that sin has not touched those and as though as therefore redemption doesn't need to touch them. No, these are the, the my, my life in the family, my life in the church, my life as a citizen, my life as uh, 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 for me personally, as a, as a Christian thinker, as an apologist, a scholar, um, for those of us who are in various different vocations, no, the life of Christ and the claims of Christ touch every area. So really what the question comes down to now, again, is what does it really mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century? And if we claim to follow Christ, have we followed him far enough? Have we gone as far as Gethsemane or maybe Golgotha, but gone no further? Have we never made it to the slopes of Olivet or uh, to the, the upper room on the day of Pentecost, have we never actually uh, seen with Stephen the, the the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of power and authority where uh, the scriptures describe him? So we have to follow Christ all the way, not only as far as the culture will allow us. And right now what the culture wants is uh, at best to say, you can have your personal piety, or even though that is increasingly being threatened, um, but you cannot uh, uh, have this Christ and his claims um, increasingly come out of your mouth or be applied anywhere in cultural life within creation. And um, a submission to that and saying, well, I'll just reduce the, the, my Christian life to my personal spiritual disciplines is pietism. Yeah, no, I think, I think you hit the, the nail on the head there. And, you know, that that is a challenge. And I think most people can get on board theoretically with like the idea that, yeah, I should be a, you know, whatever my vocation is, I should be a Christian. But then we don't really know what that looks like. Sometimes it means like I'm going to go teach in the public school and I'm going to do everything they say, but maybe I'll host an FCA meeting after school where, where I will pray with the kids. But we don't really know what it means for for Christ's rule to extend beyond our own personal private beliefs but maybe can you talk a little bit about that like how, how should it like if we do believe that the the kingdom the leaven of the kingdom is increasing 
and that Christ is ruling over every aspect and 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 redeeming every aspect that's been fallen. Um, what does that look like? Can you give us some examples of what that might look like in an in average person's vocation? Mm. Yes, uh, that's a that's a great practical question as well. So maybe a, a just a very simple place to start um, would be to say that when Christ uh, transforms us, when when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says we're made new creatures. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature, and. Um, we as creatures live in God's creation, and God has not abandoned his creation. Uh, that's what the incarnation and the resurrection, the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus is in part teaching us that God has not abandoned his creation or his creation law, his norms for creation, and his purpose for creation. Uh, the work of redemption is that restorative uh, process. So you're right in saying that uh, one of the difficulties is because of the way the message of the gospel has been truncated in, in the, um, well, especially in the last hundred years, uh, as more and more of this secularizing pressure has come to us. And we've so imprisoned the idea of the Christian life to personal disciplines in the life of the church. We don't really know what it means anymore, or looks like, to live out the fullness of the Christian life in every area. It's almost as though we live one kind of existence within the church building and a different kind outside of it, as though when you walk out the doors of the church, Jesus is no longer Lord and his word is no longer law. Uh, but what it, I think it really means in our, in our vocations is to say, well, what does the word of God um, the, the normative structure of creation and the and the word of God inscripturated for us, how does that apply into the various areas of life? When you actually look at scripture itself, a great deal of it is ac application, practical application. It's not abstract um, theological concepts. So when you look at the book of Proverbs, for example, you see the practical application of a father teaching his son how to live a godly life, expounding really God's law in wisdom to his son uh, in a whole variety of different uh, life settings. And I think that's where we've started to come unstuck. What, what's happened is we've lost the Christian mind. Um, we talk about Christian spirituality, by which we mean prayer and worship and Bible reading, but the Christian mind which relates all things in life back to the fundamental claims of Christ and of Scripture has been lost. Now, Paul addresses this immediately in the, in the most fundamental of our, uh, our relationships, the family. So when Paul teaches about marriage, for example, he is teaching, uh, in many cases, former pagans that a that the family uh, in the Christian view of reality, in God's word about reality, looks different. I mean, the non-Christian marriage is not centered in Christ. So when Paul talks about the attitude of husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, children to parents, it's as unto the Lord. Well, if you're not a Christian, you can't possibly know what 
an as unto the Lord marriage actually looks like. So Paul has to teach the new believers what uh, the marriage, what the family actually looks like. He does begin to talk also about what uh, work looks like. He has to deal even with the context of master-servant relationships within the Roman world. What do they look like? And so Paul, in a sense, gives us the Christian program. Sometimes it's helpful to use the um, the, the idea here of uh, world and life view. What are the fundamental principles? And Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, even in the most mundane things in life, do it all for the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that we have to uh, image God, God's revealed will and purpose in all of our activities. And that's given to us in the totality of Scripture. So what it begins to mean is I've given just the example of the family, but let's take the, I think, very helpful illustration you gave um, of somebody in the workplace who may be a teacher, for example. Um, generally, as Christians, what we say to ourselves in that vocation is, okay, so I'm a teacher and I may be teaching in a public school somewhere. So um, I want to be a good witness. So that means working hard. And maybe we have a prayer meeting for teachers. Let's have a Christian fellowship for the Christian teachers so that we can pray. Well, that's fine. That's good. Christians in education should pray. The question we don't tend to ask ourselves is, okay, but it's not enough that I be a Christian who happens to teach, who prays, but what is it to engage in Christian teaching? If you're in law, it's not enough to say, I'm a lawyer who's a Christian, let's have a prayer meeting for lawyers. What does it mean to have a Christian view of law? So for the teacher, what might be a Christian curriculum? For the lawyer, what's a Christian view of law? For the artist, what does it mean to think Christianly about the various disciplines in the arts? How do we convey a biblical world and life view without being preachy in artistic endeavor? And that's the gap. And the gap has become incredibly wide uh, so that we, we've been so accustomed to sprinkling either the pixie dust of the church on some of these things or simply baptizing secular modes of thought as Christian. And uh, that's where the, the harder work is done of um, developing the Christian mind, developing a cultural apologetic that begins to advance the true, the good, the beautiful, to use those expressions from the classical world, but essentially to say, how can we um, inculcate the, the mind the conscience and the imagination of the Christian commitment, the Lordship of Christ, the Word of God, in all of these vocations. And that means that because Christ is Lord in our hearts, just as a Christian marriage looks different from a non-Christian marriage, or should, because Christ is Lord, how does Christian art or Christian teaching or Christian law look different because Christ is Lord over it than the secular or humanistic pagan Islamic equivalents uh, because they have a different Lord over them. If you want to grow in your confidence in knowing what you believe and why you believe it, if you want to ground your faith in biblical Christianity and step into who God has called you to be, 
I want to tell you about a great program put on by Impact 360, and it's called Propel. Propel is a one-week transformational leadership and discipleship experience where high school students gather together to be grounded in a biblical worldview as they learn how to follow Jesus, have a godly influence, learn how to disciple their peers, and boldly live out their faith in their daily lives. So they're having two sessions this summer. The first one is June 19th through the 25th, and the second one is June 26th through July 2nd. These programs fill up really quickly, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. So we'll put the link below if you're interested in looking into it, and we'll see you this summer. Yeah, that's that's uh, super helpful. What I, what I want to hop into next is probably the more controversial element of those different spheres, which is, you know, when you start talking about how that relates to government. And so there's lots of discussions right now, you know, Christian nationalism, theonomy, like, can you give us a, a sketch of what you view to be a biblical understanding of how Christ as Lord applied to civil government? Mm -hmm. Well, that is the specific topic of one of the books you mentioned, Ruler of Kings, uh, Toward a Christian View of Government. So I, I would encourage your listeners, if they've got an interest in this, to um, maybe pick that up and, and take a, a more serious look at that. That's a really good question, of course, because um, when we think about Christ's Lordship, because of the way we have uh, come to think in uh, an increasingly secularized West, when we hear the word government, we don't think about the family. We don't think about the church. Uh, we don't think about the vocations. We think only about one element of government in human life, which is civil government. But because we've become uh, increasingly pagan in our thinking about uh, government and the state. Increasingly, we have a totalitarian conception of the state. I'll come to the meaning of that word in just a second. Uh, it means we tend to think about all government in terms of civil government, state government. And that's part of the problem. In fact, I would say that's almost the essence of the problem, is that we see human government in terms of uh, the state, which is the pagan concept of government rather than the Christian conception of government. So totalitarianism, when we hear that word, maybe people are a bit shocked that I would even use it about the West. Uh, because we have in our minds, generally speaking, 20th century dictatorships, when you use the word totalitarian, we think of uh, the Soviet Union, we think of um, uh, Mussolini's uh, uh, fascist regime, we think of the National Socialism of um, Nazi Germany. And we think of author authoritarian autocratic figures and jackboots and so on. And so if we don't see that uh, openly in our own culture, we think, well, we, you know, we're, we're not totalitarian. But that's not what totalitarianism means. Those were totalitarian regimes. Um, but totalitarianism itself means the, the, the swallowing, essentially, of various areas of life various spheres of life by one of those spheres. So it treats the others, the other aspects of life in a parts to whole relationship as though they are lesser parts of itself. So um, for example, a couple of quick examples, if you were to treat the family as the all important organizing principle for human life, uh, including civil government, you would have a mafia uh, if you were to 
treat the church as the organizing principle for all of life in society, you would have the medieval papal theocracy. Um, if you treat civil government as the ultimate principle, the organizing principle for all of life, again, treating everything else as a part, a lesser part of itself, then you have a totalitarian statism. And that's what we are increasingly now dealing with in the West. It's been a slow creep. But increasingly, we've surrendered more and more of life to civil government, to the state, to rule, to govern, health, welfare, education, um, even charity. Um, so many of these areas have been surrendered, their jurisdiction surrendered, that there is less and less that we can say belongs to these other spheres. Um, and that brings me to the, the principle that I think is biblical, um, where we see a, a separation of the jurisdiction um, and the roles um, of the family, of the church, and of the state to take three key spheres of life. Mm. Um, the, the family, for example, is a pre-political institution. The reason we can't have the state um, redefining family and usurping the role of the family is that the family isn't established by politics. Uh, it was there in the Garden of God long before the state existed. So the, the, the pre-political institution of the family is to be protected by the state, but not redefined or ruled over uh, by it. So uh, the family is one area. The church um, is another sphere of life and authority that used to have tremendous influence in Western culture, what we once called Christendom. Um, and whilst there might have been a necessary corrective of an excessive ecclesiasticizing of, of culture in terms of an ecclesiocracy where the clergy sought to rule far too many areas of life and interfere in far too many areas of life, um, the, uh, the, the sphere of the church has a distinct jurisdiction and authority that's given to it by God. Um, whether it's the what we might call the Older Testament church or the new Newer Testament church. And it has its so just as the family it has its rule through fathers and mothers, it has its order and structure, it has its own sphere of sovereignty and authority. So the church is governed by elders, presbyters. Uh, it has bishops, it has its own sphere of authority, its own area of rule, of governance, its own jurisdiction, which in the history of the West, the state recognized it could not interfere with. And of course, Americans, of all people, should understand this, um, the separation of the jurisdiction of church and state, that was at the federal level in America, not at the state level. Um, but the principle uh, is important, and that's true actually even in um, in uh, the mother of all parliaments here in, in England, is that even though there is a relationship of church and state, there is a, a state church, the, that does not mean that the, the state, the prime minister or the king, can come and preach sermons and administer the sacraments in the church. There is a jurisdictional separation, um, and that was recognized in Christendom. What's happened increasingly now, and we saw it especially over the last two or three years, where the state started to say who and where and when you could worship, um, uh, indefinite shutdowns uh, of the church and so on. Um, 
in places like Canada, um, where I was for, for many years, pastors being put in prison and so on. What we're seeing is the beginnings of the massive overreach of government. So the principle that I'm describing, which I talk about um, in both Mission of God, but especially in Ruler of Kings, is the principle of sphere sovereignty. And uh, we see the importance of this separation uh, of priesthood and kingship in that um, God took this distinction very seriously. When, the, when King Saul presumed to act as priest in the place of Samuel, he lost his kingdom for it. The only true priest king who rules over all spheres of life is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, I occupy the office of prophet, priest, and king, but he is the Lord. He is the king. So the basic idea of a Christian view of government, of authority, is that Christ is the absolute sovereign overall, and he has established various orders, various areas of authority in the earth, within creation, to govern his creatures. And uh, in human society, he's given us, of course, dominion over all of, all of the animals, but in human society, he's established different institutions, family, church, and state being three uh, core ones, um, that are to be submitted to him, governed by him within their own sphere. So it's the family must submit to Christ. The church must submit to Christ. The state must submit to Christ. And then they don't try and swallow one another. And this, uh, as though the one are simply a lesser part of the other. And what this does is preserves the freedom of the family, the freedom of the church, and the freedom of the state to serve God, to honor God, to obey God. Uh, so that's the that's the biblical idea of civil government would mean that when we when we take a look at the, the sphere of government rather than say the family or the church is that the state would recognize the authority of Christ. It would acknowledge in our constitutional arrangements the authority of Christ, just as the U.S. Constitution recognizes uh, God's authority. The oath of office is taken on the Bible because you swear by something greater than yourself. Um, and uh, the Moses is, uh, and the tablets are inscribed there on the walls of the Supreme Court building. And, and there is a recognition that Christ's sovereignty is there and that uh, the state is subject to him. So in congressional and Senate prayers uh, within our anthems, um, there would be a recognition of that right order. And then in our working out of political life um, and law, because Senate, Congress um, are where we legislate, we recognize that man is not the source of law, but we our task is to positivize law, to, to apply law. So we can't take upon ourselves the role as human beings that we are somehow from our reason the source of law, but rather we are subject to law. And therefore, we have the responsibility of positivizing God's law in government um, for our cultural moment, our moment in history, our setting, and for the unique challenges of a modern technological society. The same is true in the UK, the coronation oath of the Queen, and soon the, the new king subjects uh, the king to Christ's authority.
actually very explicitly in the English Constitution, Christ's authority and the authority of his word, the Bible. Um, and that's the law of the land. Um, we're moving away from that. We're walking away from it. We're trying to deconstruct it all. And that's why we're facing chaos right now in the West, social chaos, political chaos, legal chaos, and the decay, rather rapid decay of our culture. Um, uh, the sort of um, some of the banana republic type activities that are going on in the USA right now, and the sort of chaos in government that we're seeing in the United Kingdom uh, and in Canada right now. I mean, we've had more prime ministers so far uh, in the last six months in England than um, than I changed my socks in a week, um, because there is a sense of of chaos. Uh, in we don't we no longer know what to believe. We no longer know who we are. And um, so the principle of sphere sovereignty of each sphere of life being under Christ, preserving freedom to obey God in each of those spheres is critical to the birth of freedom historically and the preservation of freedom. Oh, man, that's that's huge. I think that sphere of sovereignty, I learned that from Ezra Institute, and I've been, you know, diving into that ever since. Um, and that kind of brings me to my final question here. But I. I don't know how familiar you are with Michael O'Fallon and the Sovereign Nations movement and his work with um, I forget the uh, the gentleman who wrote Cynical Theories, James Lindsay. Um, they've done a lot of good as far as um, exposing kind of the woke ideology and its connection to global technocrats. And one of the things that he said, though, you know, he talks about the Hegelian dialectic where they brought in this woke movement, and from his point of view, he thinks they're pushing an integralist movement on the right side that, and and he typically takes aim at Christian nationalism, but I think it would also encompass the idea that you're saying that we, we take our cues about civil government from the Bible rather than classical liberalism, which is, I think, what mm -hmm. he kind of protect. Another aspect of that that's going on, I think Joe Rigney just this week, a president of Bethlehem College was stepped down. Um, and a big part of that might have been his so-called subscribing to Christian nationalism. So there's kind of this reaction to this idea um, that Christ should be over civil government and, and, and this attempt to get back to class classical liberalism and the supposed neutrality uh, where we can all kind of get along and be happy. So as we kind of wrap this up, Dr. Boo, what I know it's a big question, but What's wrong with that in your viewpoint? Are we falling into this dialectical trap that Michael O'Fallon's talking about? Do we need to go back to classical liberalism or is there problems with that? And we actually do need to use this to propel forward to recapture something maybe deeper than classical liberalism and more biblical. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a deep question. And I deal with, again, much of that in my book, Ruler of Kings, uh, the whole idea of, of the classical liberal tradition um, and the origins of you know, liberal democracy and so on. It's, it is quite complicated because the word liberalism has changed meaning. And then there's the classical liberalism of, of, of Europe. Um, and then there is the, the Christian conservatism um, of England, of the sort of Edmund Burke um, uh, variety. Now, I would say that that tradition is the one that is more rooted in the biblical, uh, the biblical paradigm. That um, culture is something where there is a, an a, it's a sense of covenant between past, present, and future, and society is a 
covenantal arrangement under God. Uh, and that we have very concrete obligations to Christ and to Scripture. I think the there's positive things that you've already mentioned that could be said about um, at least the beginnings of a recognition among some of these believers that, hang on a second, we're in free fall here. Uh, we, need the, we need the resources of something that's transcendent and objective. And the tendency is to try and find that in human reason uh and in a a a classical liberal tradition in natural law in natural law theories rather than specifically and directly within the word of god god's law the lordship of jesus christ explicitly and specifically and so i would take the view that we need to go deeper than that um that neither the thomistic uh, a, a rationalistic tradition of natural law and the sort of the Roman Catholic answer, nor um, the idea of, 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 a, of a classical liberalism that tends still to be rooted in certain ideas of Locke, um, that, uh, that, that really finds that it, Locke didn't have actually a biblical view of uh, a strictly biblical view of human nature of the fall of man into ruin. We need a, a, a political doctrine, a view of social life that recognizes the radicality of the fall, its impact upon human thinking. We need to dethrone uh, the myth of human reason as some autonomous thing that has uh, some immediate connection with uh, uh, an ephemeral or abstract law existing up there somehow eternally. And we need to root ourselves again in the concreteness, as John Calvin did, as the Puritans did, the concreteness of God's revealed word. That's what actually gave us ultimately um, Christian nations, um, Christian parliaments. For example, Knox, who, who spent time with Calvin in Geneva, there in Scotland, and of course the founding of America, was a much more robustly biblically rooted tradition. I'm not saying the natural law tradition wasn't there at all, uh, that it was invisible, um, but I think the mistake even of whether it was the Cambridge Platonists or whether it was the the steady decay of Puritanism in um, America um, was the risk of this retrenchment in the idea of human reason. Uh, and so... Whilst there are good things to say, positive things that can be said about classical liberalism, um, ultimately, I think we need a a rootedness in Christ, in Scripture, in His Word, and and the biblical resources. And I think we need to stop being afraid as Christians of rooting ourselves it overtly and explicitly in Christ and in the Bible, in the Word of God. Uh, it's not that we um, can't reflect on, then as we look at God's word, how do we begin to develop the details of our political philosophy? But we need to be unashamed about rooting ourselves, not just in abstract concepts of universal rights, abstract concepts of God, uh, abstract concepts of natural reason and law that we think are somehow going to be neutral and more acceptable to people. They're not. So if if the encroachment of rationalism and notions of natural law have actually, as I believe they have been, part of the problems progressively, going back to them on, on is, is not going to be the solution. 
We need a more explicitly Christian and distinctly Christian response to the crisis of our time. The Muslims are not afraid of openly rooting themselves in Muhammad and the Quran. Uh, the pagans are, are not ashamed of rooting themselves in their classical uh, resources from the pagan classical world. Why are we so afraid of going back to the Bible itself and to the explicit teaching of Christ and of God himself when he established the constitution of Israel and called the people to be a light to the nations? I think that's where we should begin. Uh, that's a great place to to wrap it up too. Thank you, Dr. Boot. And I would just encourage our listeners, man, like like he said, this is a great place to begin with, you know, the centrality of the full-blooded gospel of the kingdom, the great commission, understanding Christ as ruler and 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 not settling for just trying to, you know, pull things back to to 30, 40, 50 years ago when they when they had this beautiful, you know veneer over them but actually trying to get back that is that is the way to press forward that is the hope for society is getting back to those biblical concepts and, and away from the supposed um neutral ground that, that doesn't really exist so thank you dr boot for coming on and uh we appreciate it and hopefully we'll get to connect with you guys and ezra institute down the road thanks ever so much seth good to be with you well, thank you so much for joining us for today's interview. If you don't mind, please give us a review. If you're on Apple, uh, like or subscribe, hit the rumble on the rumble page and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much. Bye -bye.